Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. Today, I'm talking with Jane Shepard. At 34, Jane left a high-level nursing career to study acting. Despite finding success in the West End and television, including a role in The Office, she's gone on to represent other actors at her boutique acting agency, Shepard Fox. I'd learned a lot about the industry from my time as an actress and being a bit older and liking people. I'd met a lot of people. So I was fortunate that I could ask people and say, what do you think about this? Or how on earth do you cope with that? And listen to people who are more experienced. And I was lucky I could do that. Thank you for joining me tonight, Jane. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, I'm really excited to have you. We're doing something a little different tonight. Normally I record during the day and tonight it's the evening. I have my glass of wine at hand. Cheers to you. Cheers to you with my pint. <laughs> and I'm so glad, well, actually I do need to take a drink. That's bad luck. Yeah. Okay. I'm so excited that you are finally joining me. I know you've been really busy. It's probably good news for those of us in the performing arts here in the UK. So what's been keeping you so busy? Well, it's been obviously very weird the whole the year, hasn't it? And just over an entire year now. Obviously, everything died initially for all of us. Theatre, everything, film, television, commercials, radio, the, the, the works. Then last autumn, I suppose it was really, late summer, filming restarted. And we were lucky that a number of ours were successful in getting television roles, film roles, and commercials, actually, and one on top of the other, which was great. That made us busy. It's been patchy, inevitably, but we have man managed to maintain that momentum with a good chunk of our list. And now that the uh, road to releasing lockdown is underway, we are hearing about theatre productions. People are beginning to plan again. And while states have been pushed back further and further, others are actually biting the bullet and going for it. And so that aspect of things is coming back uh, as well now, which is very encouraging. Having yeah. said that, we have lost, we've had to make one member of staff redundant and we have had to reduce the size of our list because we didn't have the uh, manpower within the team to be able to manage the full list, which was incredibly sad and very stressful. So it hasn't been without its problems, but there is now at least some positive light at the end of the tunnel. And we're hopeful. Yeah, I think hopeful is probably the best word because I keep feeling like, oh, I don't want to get too excited. We've been excited a couple of times before and gone back into lockdown and things like that. But also it's a little nerve wracking after, after a year. It's just, it's a weird thing to think about life resuming as quote unquote normal. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And I think in some ways I was lucky because I was more sceptical than many. I did see this being actually a long road to recovery, but partly possibly because of my background, which was in the medical world or within the nursing world and on the scientific side of things. I did a science degree. So I was very much listening to the science and the fact that this was not going to be a quick fix. Well, you've segued me perfectly into, as we know, where I'm really interested in women who have re-envisioned their lives, changed their careers, and you started in the medical, well, science degree. Tell me a little bit about that, because it's quite different than what you're doing now. Well, yes, it is. 
I was from a very medical family on both, well, on multiple sides, actually. My dad was a doctor. My mum was a nurse. My mum's dad was a doctor. My mum's dad was a doctor. It was riddled throughout the family. And I think there was always an expectation that I would go into the world of uh, the medical or caring world in some respect. And I didn't really want to. I wanted to be an actress, but I didn't have the money or the confidence, I think, back in in those days. And it was a long time ago. There weren't drama school degrees. You had to audition and get in. And, and I had the hope in hell of getting a grant in my own right to go to drama school. And so I went, okay, what's the next best thing? Well, I suppose I could be a nurse. So I went and did a degree in nursing. And it was a science-based degree, whereas a lot of them are Bachelor of Arts. This was a BSc honours degree. And it was much more intensive on the science side of things. And I did my degree at St Thomas's Hospital in London and Southbank. And it was great, actually. I did enjoy it. But I always enjoyed the practical side of things more than the academic side of things. Even though it wasn't something that you necessarily, maybe wouldn't have been your first choice, it was the next, next, best, the next best thing. Did you actually enjoy the practical side once you were out in the real world doing nursing? Yes, I did, actually. I loved it. I, I really did. And I think once I'd made up my mind I was going to do it, I, I just, that's what I thought I was going to do. And I did nurse for about 15 years. I, I did my degree. I then staffed, um, well, I worked as a staff nurse at St. Thomas's to get my post-reg badge, my Nightingale badge. And then I was offered a job, actually, uh, a more permanent job to be quite senior, actually, on, well, I was very young, on the the AIDS unit they were setting up at St. Thomas's. It was back in the mid-80s uh, when obviously AIDS was becoming known about and was becoming increasingly more prevalent. But I also sang semi-professionally in an a cappella group. And I knew if I committed to that job, I wouldn't be able to do my other love. <laughs> so I left Tommy's and I did a bit of agency nursing around my home, which is in Surrey in Guildford. And I worked out where I wanted to be. And I ended up in theatre recovery at the Royal Surrey County Hospital in Guildford. So it was acute nursing, it was critical care, it was recovery, but we doubled as a high dependency unit and we would not infrequently have ventilated cases when ITU were full and so on. So it was quite, well, it was quite intensive and it was one-to-one -one nursing and I loved that, particularly the more challenging, interesting cases where people were really very unwell. So yeah, I, I was lucky. I had an interesting time and I climbed the ladder in nursing and I ended up as the senior sister in charge of that unit and did that for about five years. And then I set up the post-operative pain service in Guildford, which was to deal with intravenous patient-controlled analgesia pumps, PCAs, and epidural infusions, so both of which were used sort of for major surgery. And I set the service up with the anaesthetists and wrote the protocols, the business plans, saw the patients, audited it, did the teaching, taught everybody from untrained staff up to obviously a lot of nurses who were um, managing the pumps, but also doctors, right up to consultants about what we were doing and the way we were going about it. And I did that for my last year in nursing before I changed career for the first time. It sounds like that was something that 
was quite senior. I actually had to look up sisters because we don't call it that in the States. How old were you at this point? Because it seems like you would have been still quite young. I when I got when I was made a senior sister, I think I was twenty eight, and yeah, I did that for five years, and then I set up the as a then I became a clinical nurse specialist, and it, it in regular clinical nursing, it's as high as you can go, and I think there's an equivalent now. I think it's called something different, but that was the level it was pretty much. And I was I must have been thirty three when I got. Yes, that position, because I left nursing when I was 34. Yeah, that would be right. So you have this singing passion that actually <laughs> was enough of a passion that it stopped you from taking one of the potential job opportunities. Is the singing kind of what left you to leave nursing? Well, I decided at 34 to leave nursing because, well, they, they, there was quite a lot of pressure on me to go and do my master's. And I, I didn't want to do that. i not never really been an academic. As I say, I much preferred the practical side of things to the academic side of things. And that's not what drove me out. That's not what I'm saying. But I'd gone as far in clinical nursing as I could go, really. And I could have stayed in the same job. I, the job is the post is still active. And I think there have been another sort of three or four people who've done it since I set it up. But I never really, in my heart, wanted to be a nurse. So it seemed... Having got that sorted, it seemed a sensible time to move. And I had a couple of friends who were going or who had just gone to drama school late. And I'd done amateur stuff with them and semi-pro stuff with them. And I thought, if I'm going to do it, now's the time because there'll be peer support and let's get on with it. So I went to drama school and did a postgrad, a one-year course. Do you think it helped you to be a little bit older and from the confidence perspective? Because you mentioned that you didn't think you had the confidence the first time around to either audition or say, I can do this or get the grants. Yeah. Was your confidence level better because of having had some success in nursing? Yes, I think so. And life experience and actually more practical experience. I'd actually done, you know, my school, you could only do a school play in what was our fourth year and lower sixth. So I think that's something like years 10 and 12. And you weren't allowed to do them in other years. So I had very little experience. And in the interim, of course, I'd done the amateur dramatic stuff. I'd done the theatre company stuff. I'd, I'd learned a lot more and the singing as, as well in this a cappella group where we sang from literally everything from madrigals and barbershop to pop songs and everything right up to Killer Queen and Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. You know? <laughs> It was great. I loved it. So uh, performance-wise, I was much more aware of what was required. We spoke about before we actually started recording about how I went to a two-year sort of less traditional drama school. Because for me, I felt like, like you said, if I'm going to do it, I need to do it now. And I, I didn't want to waste it. I don't want to say waste time. I was really nervous about the idea of more than one or two years spent studying when I was ready to get out there and start acting. Did you feel the same way? Was the one year that sort of a choice? The one year, yes, I, I thought, yeah, I need to get on with it. And the one year, because it was postgrad, a lot of, not everybody, but most people were either had, had graduates, so they were 21 plus, or had done other things in life. So it was, I wasn't anywhere near the oldest on my course. I was the upper end, but there were a number who were significantly older. And to be honest, it was all I could afford because I was funding myself. And it was a full-time course. It was 
yeah, <laughs> what I wanted to do, I wanted to do it and I afforded it. But I don't think I could have funded three years myself. So after graduating from the one-year acting program, what kind of what happened next? Because I know you had a lot of success acting. <laughs> now I'm asking for my own reference. What'd you do? How'd you get? How'd you get where you got? <laughs> well, again, I was really lucky. I worked with some amazing people who directed me at drama school, who taught me and directed me at drama school. So my first job was with a director called Richard Hanson and a musical director called Warren Wills. And they were doing a production, a new production called The Hot Pickers at the Mermaid Theatre before The Mermaid closed. And by my, well, pure chance and good luck, but good fortune for me, the person who was playing the second female lead got a really good telly job. So she couldn't do the production. And so they needed to find somebody really quickly. So I finished my postgrad at, I think it was the end of July. And by the middle of August, I was rehearsing for the Hot Pickers, which performed in September at the Mermaid shortly before it shut. So I had an amazing first job, which people saw and it was exposure. <laughs> so that was really lucky. And then I did some really good fringe. And again, another director, wonderful director, who died, very sadly died, getting on for two years ago now, but a wonderful um, man called Philip Grout. And he directed me in a number of things. And again, he's one of those wonderful people who just draws it out of you. You don't even know how you can do it, but suddenly you can because he just fills you with confidence and reassures you that it's right. And amazingly, you're good. (laughs) And so I learned a lot from him and I worked with him a number of times. And that, again, opened many more doors because he taught a lot and worked a lot, directed a lot at Guildhall with some of the really top-notch actors of, of my era. Um, yeah, I'm older than you, my era, but very well-known people. So I was getting to work with those people as well. So I was learning from the best and I was just incredibly lucky, really. And then one thing led to another. Good fringe. I did a number of things with Phil Wilmot and Amory Lewis Thomas at the Battersea Art Centre for their Christmas productions back in the day where they did year after year, they did successful musical after successful musical and everybody wanted to come and see them. So everybody did from casting directors at the National and the RSC to lots of telly, really good television casting directors, comedy and drama. And Andrew Lloyd Webber came to one of them. You know, I mean, it was just extraordinary. And that's how I got my first sort of telly break was by being seen in a fringe musical at the BAC. And I wrote to the casting teams after and just said, if you think I might ever be right for something, please keep me in mind. Thank you for coming to see the production. Hope you enjoyed it. And Tracy Gillam and Rachel Freck were casting a pilot for a comedy. And they rang and said, look, we've cast the main characters, but we're after actors or comedians, but actors for the other roles. We don't want to use extras, but we don't know. We can't promise there will even be a single line. But would you be interested? And I had done virtually no telly. So I said, yes, absolutely. I'm interested. And they cast me in the pilot. (laughs) So that was my first chance. A lot of times you hear people that start on the stage and have some success in television or film and then they say oh but my true love is the stage how about you oh gosh yeah, absolutely I, I did I did enjoy the telly and as I say I was very lucky but no you can't beat theatre you can't beat the live thing and the live audience and the spontaneity of it yes the lines are fixed and that's the same but 
performances always vary and companies always vary and it's fabulous. It's very hard to explain, isn't it? If you haven't done it, it's hard to explain. That buzz, I would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. You did mostly comedy. Was, would you say comedy was your specialty? Well, I, no, I didn't think it would be. I, I was aware I could make people laugh. When I was at drama school, we, for our showcase, we had to find pieces. And I did a bit from Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, from a section, a small part of Bed Among the Lentils. And a wonderful piece. And I, it was suggested to me by one of my tutors. And I thought, okay, I didn't know it. And I read it and thought, wow, gosh, amazing. And I did this section and, and people were just in fits of laughter. And I, I didn't expect that because, of course, you are saying it with full sincerity, aren't you? But most comedy comes out of being really real and truthful. And obviously, there's a degree of timing in it. But I don't think I realized I was funny until then, if that makes sense. I also think sometimes you read a script that to see it being performed is funny, but when you read it, like you said, it's so much about finding the character and what the character really truly believes. And yeah. most of our lives, we're not trying to be funny. We're not saying, oh, here's me being funny. This is my life. Yeah. This is just what's yeah. happening. <laughs> so it is interesting, I do think, as an actor, when you read a script and then you perform it and you're like, wait, this is funnier than I knew it was. <laughs> That's absolutely right, yes. What was your favorite, what was the best thing you got to do in your acting days? Oh my goodness. That's really hard because every single job had something different to offer. And they were all positive, even actually when one wasn't, it was a really negative experience. I still learned from it. So there's still something to take from that. But I was incredibly lucky. Virtually all the jobs I did, I loved. And I worked with some amazing people. Uh, Theatre-wise, I did an, a number of uh, tours before I did West End. I did a couple of jobs in the West End. But I toured with, I toured with uh, Charlie's aunt, with Eric Sykes and Christopher Biggins and Francis Matthews and Neil Malarkey and some of these people you'll never have heard of, but they were and are brilliant. And uh, that was extraordinary because I was between the ages of the young girls, obviously, or Donna Lucia, the matriarch. And so I was understudying, understudying the whole lot. And we'd gone into the production late. So the production was already up and running at Windsor when the understudies were cast. So we had a week to learn it, get up to speed and learn the ASM track I was doing as well. And two days into rehearsal, Nari Dawn Porter was playing Donna Lucia and she went off sick. So they said, Jane, do you know it? And I went, well, I, I know it in my sitting room. I've been learning it for two days now. <laughs> but uh, thank, it was thanks to Biggins. He warned me to start with Nari's part rather than starting at the beginning of the play, because I had started at the beginning of the play, of course. And so thankfully, I had got the lines down just about. And I was on for the matinee. I did two performances that day. <laughs> and, uh, and then the next day, we went to Newcastle. The tour went out, went to Newcastle. And I got there early to do the ASM track, to set everything up. And about, oh, I don't know, maybe an hour before the curtain, they said, Nari's still off sick. She's not coming. You're on. So I played the role that week and Nari died. It was really sad, which was very weird because I had stepped into Dead Men's Shoes. It was a really 
in, in a place who absolutely loved her in Newcastle. She was a wonderful woman and she was very well regarded. And it was really weird to be the understudy on because she had died. It was very sad and a really tough thing for the whole company because I'd only met the cast two days before this. It was the third day. So two days before I was on playing the thing. We, I didn't know any of them. So it was pressure for everybody and a huge learning experience. And I was lucky because I ended up playing a leading role with some of the best people in the UK at the time. And I did the played it for another, I can't think, week or two before they had to put another name in because they'd actually Francis Matthews had to leave as well because his wife was terminally ill. So they'd lost two of their names within the first fortnight of the production running, basically. So then I went back to being under Sunday or something and <laughs> slotted back into that role. But that was a huge learning experience. And then I did Dorian Gray with Alan Bates and his son Ben Bates and Maggie Tysack and Rupert Fraser and Lawrence Fox and all sorts of people. <laughs> and that, that was an extraordinary experience. And it was after that I got my first West End and I did The Constant Wife again for Bill Kenwright. And Jenny Seagrove was in that and Moira Lister. And that was amazing being in the West End. Seagrove was lovely. The whole team were. And uh, Stephen Pacey. And again, people that you could really learn from. And then I think I did some more touring. By that stage, I'd done the pilot, had then turned into a series. The Office had then come out as the first series. And we then shot the second series. And I think that was about to come out because they ran the first series of The Office and then went into the second series. So the two things ran together. And that was when profile-wise, people seemed to then start to have an idea of who I was and what I'd done because it was something that (laughs) was a television thing and I was doing interesting theatre at the same time. So I was very lucky with that. It was good timing. Um, I'm just trying to think what happened after The Constant Wife. It's a little while ago now. I should have got my CV up, shouldn't I? Because <laughs> um, obviously I had a different name. I wasn't Jane Shepherd. I've always kept the acting and the agenting very separate, obviously. I think I then did, I did some, I think some more musicals. I did a production of Beautiful and Damned, which was being tried out at the Yvonne Arno in Guildford. And I was cast in that because I knew the director, actually, because the musical director and the choreographer certainly wouldn't have wanted me. And indeed, I don't think did want me because I'm not really, I can sing in tune, I can hold harmonies, but I'm not a musical theatre, all out belter singer. And I Mm -hmm. certainly am not a dancer. I can move, I can work hard and I can kick high, or I could back in those days. But I'm not a dancer. I never did ballet. I don't know all the dance terms and so on. But the director wanted me because he wanted somebody to play multiple roles with quick turnarounds, and a number of them were funny, and he knew I could do that. So that's how I got Beautiful and Damned, and that was Phil Wilmot, and Craig Revel Horwood was the the, the musical director, sorry, was the choreographer, and a lovely man called David Furman was the uh, musical director. That then was tried out, kept rewriting it, didn't quite work. They then rewrote it again, and it went into the West End with Craig Revel Hallwood as the director and choreographer. And at that point, amazingly, 
Craig decided I was okay. Uh, no, we'd become friends. <laughs> we'd become friends. I've a very soft spot for Craig. But he basically offered me. I didn't have to re-audition, and most people did. So I was incredibly lucky. So I went straight through with the production with Craig directing and choreographing. And again, a huge learning experience. It had all changed, so my line of parts were different. That didn't matter. I had an absolute ball and the company were fantastic. It was lovely because I had to learn to tap dance in five weeks. And because the parts I was playing were multiple roles, but they were not huge, I had lots of time between my bits of rehearsal to learn to dance. And similarly, the dancers who were helping me and teaching me, they needed a hand to actually do some of their, their little roles or their covers and that sort of thing. So I would help them. So it was a really positive team of people who were working together to get the best results they possibly could. And that, that it was wonderful. I had an absolute ball. I think that's one of the most fun things. And I don't know you probably know better than I do how often it actually happens nowadays, but the idea that you get a part and you get to learn something completely new. You said you're a mover. I would agree. I'm a mover who can kick high, but I'm not as bad as Joey Jazz Hands on Friends, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely not a dancer. But the idea that you could go into this production and get this role, this kind of a dream role anyway, and then actually get to learn to tap dance as part of the role is pretty cool. I was I was very much when I was tap dancing, I was near the back and made sure I was. I was <laughs> not one of the featured tap dancers by any means. But I, Craig made me do it. He wasn't going to let me out of it. <laughs> and it was great because it got me fit. And as you say, I learned I was going to say, after that, well, I did a production, I did one of the latter ones, parts of the bill. I played a vicar on the bill, actually, Christmas, Christmas episode. It was great fun with Nick Phillips, who directed that wonderful man. And then I went and did Oliver in Aberystwyth with Gay Soper and Peter Carey. And again, one wonderful people. It was a great cast and a, a lovely musical director, Andrew Hilton. And one of the Dodgers, the Artful Dodgers, was Taron Edgerton. And he was amazing. Even then, he stood out. He was only 15. He was absolutely brilliant. And he hadn't been in Aberystwyth very long. He was still getting to know everybody as well. And he shone. He was a delight to work with. And he was also a fan of The Office. So he always wanted to talk about that, as well. <laughs> <laughs> which was lovely. But I think of his career now, my goodness, or how successful is he? And I'm just delighted for him. Yeah, the closest I can say I've gotten to him was I did ADR voice stuff for The Kingsman 2. Oh, great. <laughs> so I'm a very far six degrees or 10 degrees or something of separation. Fantastic. But I loved those films so much. So I was so excited to get to do that. That's great. Well done. <laughs> You're not quite the same, but it was really an enjoyable day or two or what have you. And then, of course, I was like, I was in that scene. You can't really tell, but I was in it. That's my voice somewhere. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> it all counts. Exactly. So again, it seems like this is all going quite well. What, what makes you ready for a shift again? What made me change career? Yes, that's a good question. I didn't really plan on changing career. I set up the agency in a partnership. The idea was I would still, I had an, an agent, obviously, as my um, acting name was Jane Lucas, and I was Jane Shepherd Fox, which is my legal name. And the idea was I'd do it in a partnership, so the agency was always manned and covered, but I would still be able to carry on acting because I wasn't ready to stop acting. But in the long run, I could see, as you quite rightly said, 
A lot of the roles I played were smaller roles. They weren't the main leading roles. They were little tiny bits. And I was quite happy with that because I'd come into my career late, much later than people were doing it from 18, 19. And therefore, the people that were going to get the bigger roles of my age group were far more experienced. So how was I going to compete with that? And I, I accepted that. I completely understood that and thought, OK, well, let's see what there is and let's see how it develops. I came to a point where I realised that, yes, I might get lucky and I might jump a section. But the reality was I was more likely to be playing the smaller roles. And it therefore, in the long run, might be wise to have something else that I could also do. But the plan was it was it, the agency was partnership, so I could still carry on both. And when I wasn't there, the partner would step in and so on. The reality turned out to be somewhat different, and I was left holding the baby. Mm. And by that stage, I had people's careers in, in my hands, and there was no way. And again, this is, I think, a throwback to the nursing. There's no way then I'm going to go, oh, sorry, no, I'm going off for two months to do uh, another job in Aberystwyth, which actually I was offered, and, uh, and I had to turn down because there wasn't not enough notice to get cover for the agency. It then did become some really tough choices because my heart was saying, go and do go and do this production with Michael Bogdanoff. And I had to say, no, I'm really sorry, I can't. And that was really sad. But I think I felt I had a responsibility to my clients, which I, as an agent, one does have. Yeah, like you said, you do have everyone's career in your hands and you're you need to be there every day pushing for them to get jobs and being that sort of bridge between casting directors and... So that that's interesting, though, because I said, I told you before, again, before we started recording, that I had a write-in question. Josie Arden, who is an actor agent at a co-op agency, asked about, and I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. How do you balance the salesy side, air quotes, salesy, of being an agent with the more pastoral side of your client's well-being? And do you ever struggle with or find one that's a bit more natural to you? I think, I don't know. I, I think when I first became an agent, it didn't strike me. I, I hadn't taken into account how much of the pastoral side would be needed. I hadn't really considered, actually, how much support actors do need sometimes, and some actors do need. Others Others are more self-sufficient. And I think perhaps, I don't think, maybe I did, but I don't think I expected that of my agent, but possibly because I'd come into the industry later mm. and had more life experience. So I think it's different for every individual, isn't it? So that was one aspect. I hadn't quite considered how much time that would take to look after people. With regard to the salesy side of selling your clients, I think this, you have to, I've, I've learned, it's much easier to represent somebody you like than somebody you mm. don't like very much. And it's easier to push somebody you relate to than somebody you don't understand as much because you can push them more wholeheartedly and more from the heart with more natural passion. Now, that's not to say you can't do that with somebody that you have less an affinity with. Of course you can. It's just different. But the salesy side, I think it all comes together because actually you want the best for your client in every respect. So you want to look after them and take care of them as they need, but you also want the best outcome for them. So you do push them. And certainly with negotiating deals, you want the best outcome for them. And ultimately, of course, that's then the best outcome for you, being commission-based. So we all benefit. So 
I think I don't see them really as that that separate. I suppose. I think that's fair. I also think it's interesting because agents get such a bad rap so often on TV. I don't know why Joey's back in my head from Friends, but the stereotypical cigarette smoking, <laughs> or the other one is Toast of London. She's a crazy agent. I think it's interesting to hear from an agent about taking care of their clients and that everybody wants the best for their clients, because I don't think you always get that when you see how agents are written. Well, no, but it's very, isn't it? It's really hard for actors. There is con- almost, unless you're incredibly lucky, there is re- very usually rejection after rejection. Then there might be a job and that's fantastic, but then there's rejection and rejection or you don't hear anything. Although, although I have to say the casting directors are really trying so much more now to actually feedback and really have taken that on board. I would agree with that. And that's positive, I think, and that is good. But nonetheless, there's still a lot of rejection because there are a lot of acts out there and there are a lot of people relatively being considered for roles in productions and the majority are not going to get them. It is tough. And when that rejection builds up, it's very easy to blame your agent. I'm not being seen for the right stuff or I'm just not being seen. Because again, there won't be, it's not fair, is it? It's not as though each client gets seen for X amount of stuff in a week or a month or a year. It's some people will be seen for more stuff and others won't be. It's it's not fair. And although an actor is never out of sight or mind because we see their faces all day, every day, because we're submitting them for work and thinking about them and considering where their strengths are on a daily basis. We're not, we can't communicate that on a daily basis. So sometimes if they haven't heard from us for a while, it must feel that we're not doing anything. But actually, we're, we're doing everything we can all the time. But people can't know that because it won't feel like that from that, their perspective. And I, I do understand that. And I don't know what the answer is to that because there are only so many hours in a day. And one of the reasons you kindly, uh, we started a bit late tonight and you were so kind and gracious about it, was because at 20 to 7, there was another thing that came in, a self-tape for a client that needs to be turned around and submitted by four o'clock tomorrow. If I didn't handle that, then the the client would miss out because the deadline is four o'clock tomorrow. Yeah. And the turnaround times sometimes are ridiculously quick. So if your agent's not there saying, yeah, this is due tomorrow, then you hear about it at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. and... Yeah. The turnaround time is much less. So thank you for doing that, though, because (laughs) that sounds like good agenting. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We try. We try. So I actually had this question already, but it's so much more relevant now that I've spoken with you a bit. Do you miss acting? And do do you ever, I don't know, do you ever look at your clients and go, that I would want to put myself up for that role? Or do you still have that feeling? Not really. And actually, I don't think I ever really have as an agent because it was very separate and I'm still listed with another agency. I don't represent myself. So there isn't a conflict there. So I'm not really thinking about myself (laughs) when I'm an agent. Very occasionally, if there's something really specific, then I might think, God, I suppose I could do that. But Usually, I think very quickly about how the hell would I fit that in? Get on with it. (laughs) Back to getting on with it. But I have to say, it is once in a blue moon. I can't remember the last time I thought that. And I think the last time I did think it, it was for a role of a woman of my age who was Northern Irish. And I was born in Northern Ireland. And inevitably, when 
you're born somewhere and you live there for the first sort of eight, nine years of your life, the accent and so on is in you. And I could, I can, and my dad lived there until he died uh, a few years ago. So I used to go back every year or sometimes several times in a year. I would go back regularly. And so something like that for a role where I might think, oh, my agent probably wouldn't think of me in that way because I'm naturally and always have been. I speak as I do now, but both my parents did. But I do have that skill and that's something that they wouldn't automatically think about. And it would really be more in those terms that I might think, oh, I could do that. But they might, they probably wouldn't think of it. So you started the agency in 2005. So you've been doing it a while now. But thinking yep. back, what do you think the biggest challenges, actually in both cases, because you've had the two big career changes, but what was maybe the biggest challenge coming into acting a little bit later? I think you said that a little bit about that with the smaller roles and everything. And then again, with the career change, yet again, moving to more of really an agenting and business side. Yeah, um, definitely there were challenges to get established and to be recognised as somebody who was reliable and trustworthy and was going to provide a good product and efficiently. And things that it takes a long time to build a reputation. It needn't take very long to destroy one. <laughs> in both careers, really. In, in both careers, yeah, that's true. With regard to becoming an agent, I was quite lucky because of my nursing background, because my final job, I did have to write in conjunction with one or two others, but I did have to write the business plans, the protocols, the set up a business from scratch. So although it was in a totally different sphere, <laughs> that was in the medical scientific world, and this is very much in the arts, the sort of organisation and the structure, there was still some ability to be able to work out what needed to be done. I think probably, again, going back to drawing on the nursing, I've got a reasonable amount of common sense. And most of what being an agent is largely common sense, isn't it? You think about the submission stage, the sorting the meeting stage, the handling the offers, the negotiating the terms, the contracts, the networking, and you think it through logically and one follows after the other and you develop those skills as you go along. And I suppose attention to detail, but again, that's going back to the nursing. You couldn't make mistakes and it'd be okay. You had to be accurate. And it's the same with being an agent. You have to give a meeting out accurately. You can't give the wrong day or the wrong time. Or <laughs> right. Nobody's going to get a job. The, that sort of accuracy is paramount. I had those skills. They were in me. So it was then just applying them, really. And I'd learned a lot about the industry from my time as an actress and being a bit older and liking people. I'd met a lot of people. So I was fortunate that I could ask people and say, what do you think about this? Or how on earth do you cope with that? And listen to people who are more experienced. And I was lucky I could do that. Do you feel like you learned anything from your agent when you were working as an actor as well? Things you maybe you liked as an agent or didn't? Yeah. <laughs> I've had three different agents agents and different relationships with all of them. And I think I, I certainly learned from all of those. Yes. M most importantly, I think as an agent, it, it's communicating, isn't it? And being clear and open. Yeah. Especially like you said, if you haven't heard from your agent in a while and you're feeling a little neglected or maybe that they're not doing their jobs, if they're not communicating with you, hey, I still know you're there. <laughs> it gets really lonely. So yeah, I definitely yeah. think that communication is key. And then of course, you're communicating with many different actors in the course of a day and different casting directors and things like that. Going back to your question, though, of the biggest challenge, 
I think one of the biggest challenges was to establish in all areas because I didn't, I'd never been pigeonholed. I worked in, in television and theatre and musicals and a bit of radio, a bit of film, the odd commercial. And I didn't see that it was necessary to pigeonhole people. So I deliberately, it took a longer, but I deliberately built the agency very evenly. So we built contacts within television and theatre and musicals and film and commercials deliberately so that it, it is now easier for our clients to shift between genres because all of those people know us. And whilst casting directors move around, some of them, others don't. And that took a long time and it took a long time to break into the big companies, understandably. The, the, everybody wants to be there. Within theatre, the RSC and the National, it, it took longer. I imagine similarly to so, there's being so many actors for so few roles. There's so many agents that want to be talking to, I mean, I want to be talking to the National and the RSC. Who doesn't? Of course. <laughs> Quite. And if you were trying to really keep keep a separate, even though you knew people as an actor, trying to keep that business separate, it's not as easy to kind of say, hey, you know me, come on. Did you feel like it was something you could pull a little connections or was it just, no, that's not on the cards? Not, not initially because I was still wanting to act when I could, where I could. As I say, the options became more limited. I did still do bits. I did a little bit on Silk, the telly. I did do little bits now and again. And yeah, the odd little bit. But it was, they were few and far between. But I had deliberately kept it separate. There was one time when I was taking a casting director to see a client in a West End production. And I'd invited her and we were confirming every you know we, that was all set up and then on the day we were communicating saying where well, we'd meet and so on and she said well how will I recognize you and I <laughs> said well I, actually you know me you know me as and you cast me in <laughs> and she roared with laughter and said oh my god and all this time I've been thinking I've been speaking to some posh bird <laughs> <laughs> and it was lovely we met up we had a lovely evening and she's brilliant but it was very funny because she didn't know and she hadn't made the connection and and that was right because it was inappropriate we I was in a different role and it did really really take years for people to work to discover that I was the same person that's good though I like that you, you built up two separate careers and kept them separate and I do think people sometimes do people have sometimes an issue with the whole hyphen career and I think people are coming around to it a bit more but when people say oh I'm an actor well, I mean with me I list off all these different things that I do. And it's just, do people think I'm less serious about one versus the other because I'm putting this long list together? And I would like to think of myself as really working hard at each thing that I do and trying to be the best at everything I can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I do think in this world, it is possible. And actually, I think it's really sensible of you because it is very hard to work, especially having come in a bit later, to work full-time as an actress and nothing else. So do allied things within the same world, I think is brilliant. And I love too what you've said about, I think it's really important when we're looking at, I don't know, the, the arc of our lives, how much nursing has influenced something so very different that you're doing now. Because when it comes down to it, we all have life experience. And the person, um, the, the episode I published this week, she kept talking about going to the University of Life. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, definitely. Oh, you can't beat life experience, can you? <laughs> no. 
some of it I could do without some of the experiences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't beat it. You will have still learned from them. That's the thing, isn't it? We've all had our ups and downs, but they do inform and allow you to empathize more with others and so on. So it's taking the positives, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, so I have two more questions. First off, this is going to be just as hard as when I ask you about your kind of favorite, your favorite roles. But what about triumphs as an agent? I think when, particularly when you take someone from drama school, and you can nurture them and support them and see their career grow and then fly. And we've done that with a number of people. And from being, especially sometimes, because we've got all sorts and ages and types and quirky characters and all sorts of wonderful individuals on our list. And they're not always those that will have an obvious casting particularly when you go back 10 years. Things have moved on, thankfully, an awful lot further now and much more inclusive in a lot of ways, but obviously diversity-wise, but right across the board in so many different ways, things are much more broad-minded, I think, now. But some people are more quirky and characterful. And, and to bring them through and they get their West End breakthrough, certainly one on one occasion, stay in the West End for two or three years and then get a major feature film and do that. And that leads on to other things. And then, and you, you see that happening is fantastic. The other things I think where they were landmark moments were getting your first person in with the RSC and in with the National and in at Chichester. And, and then your first probably regular telly in a regular thing that then moves on, repeat series. The hard thing, of course, is that the young ones are, especially as you do move them forward and they become much more <laughs> sellable, are also, the grass is always greener, isn't there? There's an, always a, an element of that. And that's tough when that happens. That's the other side of that one. But that's life and it happens always and it happens to us all. Yeah, I feel like the but the dream story is sort of actor and agent and you start with the agent or you start with the actor and they grow and as they're accepting their big awards, they're saying, I want to thank my agent who I've been with for 25 years. Who <laughs> I think that seems like the dream relationship, personally. We do have clients who have been with us for 15 years from drama school right the way through, which is, is lovely. And we 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 have we we do retain clients, but you won't retain everybody. That's just not how it is. But I do feel very um, fortunate, actually, that we have done that with a number of people. Which, yeah, very lucky. Okay, so that leads me to the quote. Did you bring a quote for me tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, this is really tricky because I'm not very good at things like that. I think I have two things. A, a, li a life one was something when I was struggling as a child and I didn't know how to deal with a particular situation. And my mum said to me, it's something that has always stayed with me, and that is, I like to repay kindness with kindness. The other one, I think, is more at the moment with all the uncertainties and the chaos that's going on around us. And as I say, thankfully, hopefully, there's a bit of light coming now. But nonetheless, we're not out of it yet. And I think one day at a time and small achievements. If you're having, if you're struggling 
and things are difficult, just achieve something small because it will make you feel better. You don't have to battle and take everything on all at once. Small achievements. I feel like people say things like they're not good at this and then they bring me this beautiful quote that is just what I need to hear today <laughs> and just what probably a lot of <laughs> listeners need to hear. So I think you're quite good at it. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's interesting talking to people because so often there's so much positivity around I was so lucky and I worked with the best people. And I think you've said quite a few things tonight that are your own quotable quotes. Yeah, thanks for bringing those two quotes, but also thanks for all the optimism that you seem to be showing about your career and your life. Well, thank you. Thank you for making it such a joy and all the very best to you too. It's extremely exciting. And thank you for inviting me. It was really nice chatting with you. And you too. Take care. Thanks for listening. We're nearing the end of our second season and really appreciate all of our listeners. Be sure to follow, review, and share so we can continue to grow and bring you inspiring stories of women who are kicking ass after 35. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.